You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here. I have a very, very important guest today. His name is Gordon Holmes. Gordon is a certified financial planner, but his practice focuses almost exclusively on special needs, helping families with the legal, government, and financial issues that accompany the special needs journey. This is actually really personal and important to me. I have a special needs daughter. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit on the show today. I have a beautiful young lady we adopted from overseas, uh, actually a country called Moldova, which has been very timely in the news. We're recording here at the end of February, early March, 2022, and the conflict with Ukraine is happening right in front of us. So you're hearing about Moldova in the news. That's where a lot of Ukrainians are fleeing to. We actually adopted our daughter from that country when she was two years old, brought her home not knowing she had special needs. And we found out along the way that she does. She has a lot of mental challenges, And so that's led to us dealing with all of the issues that we're going to talk about today with Gordon. And here's what I want to say is even if you're working with a financial advisor out there, I spent over two decades as a financial advisor specializing for abnormally high income families. A lot of doctors, a lot of brain surgeons, business owners, there is so much that I did not know. I had no clue about these nuances and critical aspects of having a special needs child. I actually went out as our daughter was getting older, realizing we needed to be thinking about estate planning and social security and guardianship, all these things we're going to actually unpack today. I recognized I needed help. Even though I do this financial stuff day in and day out, and I'm really excited today for you, our listeners, to hear about this. And even if you don't have a special needs child, I think you'll take some good things out of this. You're going to learn about how some of our government programs work and some of how they don't work. And you're also going to hear about what those families need to be thinking about. So I think this will be helpful for anybody out there. And if you don't have a special needs child, but you know someone who does, please absolutely make sure you share this episode with them. That is probably my longest introduction ever, but it was important. And Gordon, thank you so much for being with us here today. You're welcome. Happy to be a part of your program. Excellent. Well, Gordon, we always like to start before we get into some of the nitty gritty. People love to hear our stories. So you've been at this for a while, but you didn't start day one down this path. So, you know, what was it that really took you and sent you down this path of wanting to work with families that have special needs children? Great question, Tommy. And several things converged. Number one, after a stint in management, many years in management, I was returning to private practice as a financial planner practitioner and was seeking to define how my practice would function and look at that point, again, after close to 20 years in management. Second, the firm I was with was launching a special needs initiative, and they were seeking advisors with some experience that could work with and help families that have a member with special needs And then simultaneous with those two events, my wife and I started our personal special needs journey with our youngest son, who's now 26. 
And so there was a convergence of these three things at the same time. And so I felt strong, I just felt led strongly to move my practice in the direction of special needs. And like so many things, it started out as something small. And then over the years, it really has engulfed the the practice and a lot of joy has come with helping many families. Well, you sure do a good job at it, Corden. And it's interesting. I guess I didn't realize you had those multiple factors. You know, imagine your company coming saying, we need special needs support at the same time you're finding out, boy, I'm dealing with this personally. You know, listeners, I almost took the opposite approach and I actually shared this with Gordon. I think for us, it was so much of a surprise and maybe so difficult, a very difficult aspect of our family's life that I kind of completely stayed away from any type of special needs planning because I was already dealing with it day in and day out in my own home. And I didn't want to make that part of my daily life in my practice. Not to say that it's a bad thing in any way. I just didn't have the mental capacity or kind of even mental strength to do what Gordon's doing, which is, you know, have it in his own home and go do it day in and day out in his business and really applaud that. I just couldn't do it. So Gordon, when you first started going down this path, I wouldn't even know where to start if I were trying to develop a niche expertise in this area. I didn't know. That's why I called you. So when you were getting started, what was it that you did to start getting your feet wet? Well, part of the motivation in moving my practice into special needs uh, was I really felt ill-equipped as a parent. It was something new and different. So I thought it would be personally beneficial to surround myself on a daily basis with other parents whose journey struck a familiar chord to uh, learn from them. So the idea was, let's help each other. So I would share with them what knowledge and expertise I had. And then at the same time, I would get my questions in. How do I handle, you know, an IEP meeting or other issues, this type of thing? And so I was like a sponge soaking up information from parents and sharing. So it was very much a two-way street. So in terms of getting my practice going in the direction of special needs, I think an essential part was figuring out where the special needs community congregates. Where do they get together so that I would have the opportunity to share my passion for for being helpful? And so what we found were a combination of school corporations, that is, students with IEPs and 504s and special education and special educators with a heart for these kids. And so I became a sponsor of organizations in special education and special education director associations and so forth. And that was my way of giving back to them because of the help that our son was receiving. And simultaneously, it opened doors for me to provide parent education, that is to provide educational workshops to parents whose children were receiving special education in the school corporations and special needs cooperatives. So that's one example. In addition to that, a host of nonprofits So there are many nonprofit organizations that support respective special needs communities as a subset based on diagnosis or the type of challenges the children have. And so I became a a member and a sponsor of a number of nonprofit organizations, uh, volunteering and again, sponsoring and participating in their 
events and so forth, as well as providing education to, you know, to the families and the parents involved there. Churches as well, with regards to special needs ministries and the opportunity to to share with families that were working in or volunteering in or had children involved in special needs ministries at a number of faith-based organizations. So those are, I guess, several that, that come to mind. And then eventually it expanded uh, from there to organizations serving a broader swath of ages of individuals with special needs, not just the children, but adults as well. And then providers extending the, you know, the hand of, of providing education to families that are um, receiving services uh, from a variety of different special needs providers. So over time, between state conferences and and a host of nonprofits, including like Special Olympics and Down syndrome organizations and autism organizations and, and many others, have had the opportunity to provide a lot of education. And through sharing helpful information as an extension, the opportunity to work with many families to help them with the planning process. So I've always seen myself as by being a parent as not a a vendor or a provider serving the special needs community, but a member of the special needs community serving my peers. That's a great way to think about it. And that's certainly how our family felt as we were working with you. It was, you know, working with somebody that actually understands the joys and the challenges that come with being a special needs parent. And so (laughs) it's funny to say it that way. I am a special needs parent but the parent of a special needs child. <laughs> so goes with both. So Gordon, I think what I'd like to do with our time today is just kind of walk through almost the life cycle of, you know, let's take a parent like us. We found out our daughter had special needs when she was three and, you know, take it, take this through the life cycle of things that families need to be thinking about as they hit different points. And listeners, it's not our intent today to give you all the nitty gritty details of everything you need to do, but our hope is point you in the right direction with the questions you need to be asking and thinking about, and then ultimately get you connected with the right resources so that you can move forward and take your particular situation and handle those details. So, you know, Gordon, a a family finds out their, their child has special needs. That child is three years old. What are going to be the first things that they need to start thinking about now that they have that diagnosis and they know there's something here? Okay. The zero to three age group, especially frequently deals with medical issues if the nature of the diagnosis has a medical involvement. And so that often comes early on with what we call first steps. First steps focuses on the birth to the third birthday. And so many times the form of getting help starts with first steps. An extension of first steps then would next be to look at what is called a Medicaid waiver. And Medicaid waivers date back several decades. They were largely created to provide services and supports in the home and community, as opposed to our young individuals with special needs perhaps being cared for in more of an institutional setting. And so these go back all the way to the 80s. And these waivers 
were created state by state. So uh, states were tasked with creating these waiver programs to provide services in the home and community. And what's exciting about these services is that the focus is on individuals with special needs, and it's regardless of a family's financial circumstances. So again, with a Medicaid waiver, you could have a family with a a seven-figure or eight-figure net worth. You could have a six-figure income, and the child could still be eligible uh, for these extremely valuable waiver services, which can be medically based, or it can be developmentally or intellectually based, this type of thing. And so most all states have these waiver programs. And so the earlier on a family is able to find out about these, the earlier on they can get help. So I think waivers are very important. And even from these youngest of ages, oftentimes parents can, in essence, sign their child up for waiver services. Sometimes there are waits which makes an early start all the more important so that time is counting for you instead of against you. And again, no two states are identical. So, you know, we work with families based on where they're at from a state standpoint, what Medicaid waiver programs might be available and to help them get plugged in there. Gordon, I want to give some examples. When we say these waiver programs, they're just things I had absolutely no clue about as a parent. And maybe perhaps one of the most important is just the opportunity for respite for the parents. And there's actual uh, budget allocated by the states to say, you know what? We know that refreshed parents are going to provide better care for a special needs child than parents that are just constantly burnt out. And so that's an example. Uh, Occupational therapy. You know, when we found out about the waiver programs, uh, we have an occupational therapist, she comes over, she picks our daughter up once or twice a week, takes her over to the gym and just get some extra exercise with her. During the summer, she'll take her to the zoo so they can go on a walk at the zoo. So it's almost accomplishing some of the respite function as well as some of the actual uh, occupational therapy functions. And those are just a couple of samples, but these are programs provided by the state for the family. And again, as Gordon mentioned, and this is why I was about a decade behind the ball game on understanding this was possible. I thought that my situation was too advanced. My income was too high or things of that nature where we would not qualify, but none of that matters as it relates to these specific programs. So really important. So we also talked about first steps, Gordon, and I want to go back to that real quickly. Is that a state program? Is that the same program in every state or is that just what you're calling that category of life? First Steps is a program that with similarities is nationwide. So starting again from birth to age three, it also is the the period of time that predates or precedes any special education involvement. So a child with special needs is eligible typically for special education starting at the age of three, and that's the age at which an IEP or individual education plan is created for them. So first steps or programs like it all across the country are really critical for those first three years where, you know, if you miss miss three years worth of, of development, it's really tough to get that back. So, and first steps is typically provided regardless of financial circumstances as well. And so if parents are fortunate enough to learn about Medicaid waivers, you know, during those first five or six years, then they can have first steps, they can have special education, 
They can, as you mentioned, supplement with waiver services and really feel like that there's some help for them versus, you know, we're out here and, you know, can we get some help or support? I think the personal attendant care pack hours, as we frequently refer to it, under the waiver for giving parents a break is important. Sometimes it's just enabling the parents to have a date night or maybe go see a baseball game or something of one of their other children. There's just so many opportunities created by having that professional there, you know, as opposed to a teenage person, you know, that's been through a safe sitter class, but is, you know, not really prepared for providing care for a young person with special needs. So, and then as the uh, children get a little older, we get into individual education plans and special education provided by the local school system. That kicks in usually at age three, and then it's part-time generally until they reach kindergarten and on into their elementary grades. And if a child hasn't been targeted for a waiver, because frequently there, there is a wait, then hopefully by then they're receiving waiver services. And so you're right, you can get OT and speech and additional tutoring and behavioral help if the diagnosis provides for some behavioral challenges as well. And by this time, hopefully the family's plugged into perhaps a nonprofit organization that has some level of support or help uh, based on the diagnosis of their child so that they have a sense of community as well. And so we encourage that. That's part of why in my practice, we participate in so many nonprofits in actually more than one state. Even we were active in nonprofits both throughout Indiana and Kentucky as well, and attend as many of their functions and fundraisers and and programs as possible. And again, always when we can, providing helpful education on these, on the government benefits and the financial and the legal issues, because it's overwhelming for parents. They're trying to maintain their careers and their employment and, and raise children. And it's busy enough without all of the added complexity of having a child with special needs. So a big focus of ours is trying to lift the load or lift the burden Uh, somewhat so that, again, there's that sense of community, there's a sense of help and support. So, you know, that carries forward. There's sometimes summer school, some tutoring. Parents can supplement what the school system provides because rarely is the IEP enough alone. And so there's usually extra programs. Sometimes insurance will, will come in and help with some amount of therapies. What's also significant, Tommy, is that with the Medicaid waiver, usually comes Medicaid and it's a favored form of Medicaid in the areas where I work, the, we call it disability Medicaid. So most states have several different forms of Medicaid, and the type that comes with a waiver is usually highly sought after. And so you end up with Medicaid helping with health care, even as a secondary payer, if, you know, if the child is fortunate enough to be covered under the parent's group health insurance, this type of thing. So, so you end up with Medicaid, you end up with a budget, as you said, for waiver services, what the school provides in the way of individual education plan, uh, programs for nonprofits, and then don't overlook what the community can provide. So an example in Carmel, Indiana, and some people may have heard of Carmel, but there is what's called Carmel Dad's Club Special Sports. So this is just an example of a grassroots effort where they provided a a program of a variety of sports as almost a feeder system into the schools. But what about children with special needs? So 20 plus years ago, special sports was born. And so through fundraising, it became fully endowed. And so it's free. There's absolutely no cost to parents. They have several sports per year, which give young people with special needs the opportunity to participate. And then on to special Olympics and so forth. 
I have to say that in just the 23 years that I have focused on special needs, we have come so far. It's just so encouraging to see the support, the programs, and the opportunities that exist. And of course, you know, the focus is on quality of life. That is, instead of simply caring for our special needs population, it's investing in them and helping them create or become all that they can be. It's kind of like, let's educate them, do for them, and help them in every way possible and see how far we can take this. And it's going a long ways. (laughs) Like I said, 23 years ago, compared to today, and just my professional and personal journey, things have come so far. And again, I'm so very encouraged. At the same time, it makes special needs planning even more important because if we're going to elevate the life experience for our loved ones with special needs, then of course the question becomes, you know, how do those good things keep happening, you know, when we as parents get older or eventually begin to fade? So Gordon, that's really helpful. You talked about a lot of different educational programs, community things that people can get involved with. I wanted to take a quick minute and just share some lessons I learned on the IEP side of things. I had the unfair advantage that my brother-in-law is the principal of, I believe, one of the largest elementary schools in the state. And so, you know, he had a really good understanding of how this works from internally from the school's perspective. And so he was able to coach us, guide us every step of the way. Now, I have to give a huge caveat and shout out. Our local public school has just been 100% top notch as it relates to the way that they have helped our daughter all the way from elementary school now till high school. So I don't have any complaints to begin with, but we certainly had some good coaching along the way. I think the most important thing we learned about the IEP, and again, that's an individual education plan. You know, if you have a a student that maybe is not going to function well in a normal, typical kind of school setting, they may have an individual education plan. A lot of special needs students would think of this, you know, as we were growing up, this was like kids that went to the resource room and they may still have that in some settings. So The thing that I wish we would have learned earlier is that it is absolutely okay as a parent to try to reinforce at school the things that you are working on at home and vice versa. And we learned that finally, you know, about the middle school years, late middle school, we realized, wait a minute, when they are bringing this IEP, we don't have to just say, oh yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. When they would talk about a section of these are the behavioral things we are working on for your daughter. Well, let's make sure that their process at school is mirroring our process at home. And if they're working on these are the life skills that we're working on right now, well, we could interject and say, you know, actually, these are the ones we're focused on at home. How can we build these into the plan? And we wasted a solid six years not trying to coordinate those things because we just didn't really know we had that leeway and freedom and authority as the parents to ask for that. So just want to encourage you, if you have an individual education plan, it doesn't just have to be a document given to you by the school. You can really have great input on how it coordinates with all the things you're working on at home so that you have a team effort going after it. And then our best support for the school was we in turn were trying to reinforce what they were using 
we were trying to reinforce that in our home. So it was a consistent thing that was happening for our daughter at school all day. Then when she was at home, at least for her, consistency is really key. So just want to empower you as parents. Those IEPs don't have to be just handed to you. You really can have some great input into those. So Gordon, we go through you know the IEP stage, community support, now we get to this stage and this happened for us, you know, a couple of years ago, but our daughter was about to turn age 18. That became a really important trigger. Fortunately, I got to know you before that happened because I would have been completely lost. So as we get to that stage, there's some really important things that a family needs to be thinking about. Why don't you take us through that? Great, Tommy. And there is, it gets complicated as you approach age 18. Usually it starts with the education, educational situation, talking about transition planning. So they usually start that conversation at about age 14-ish, maybe 15. And topics such as guardianship start coming up and SSI and, and Medicaid waivers if the child is not yet on a Medicaid waiver. But you're right, Tommy, there's a convergence at age 18. And that's because for in most states, that's the age of majority and the age at which it's kind of a transition from child things to adult things. And so parents that are not prepared for that, it can be a bit overwhelming. So there are two academic tracks in most cases, two major academic tracks. One is the diploma track, and that's getting a diploma of some type, whether terms such as core 40 or basic diploma or something, but either diploma track or certificate track. Diploma track would enable typically the child to continue on in their secondary education experience until they're 21 or 22. And what we call age out, uh, receiving again that certificate of completion. Diploma track means typically once you've met the criteria for the diploma program or academic diploma track that you're on, you're done. And so parents are sometimes a bit unprepared for suddenly going from five days of programming, this type of thing, to having to figure things out. Again, Medicaid waiver services, potential part-time employment of some type, et cetera, can be extremely helpful. And sometimes nonprofits or organizations also have activities and so forth. So usually it's pulling together a variety of different things to work on the programming part of things as they finish their secondary education experience. As far as the government benefit side is concerned, SSI would be the elephant in the room, so to speak. And for most of our kids, unlike the Medicaid waiver, prior to age 18, family finances do typically block eligibility in most situations for the what's called SSI or supplemental security income. But once the child turns age 18, like the Medicaid waiver, no longer does a parent's assets or income block eligibility. And so this child that lives in the bedroom next to you and nothing's happened except we blew out 18 candles on the cake and suddenly everything changes. And so parents are like, wow, you know, they're still going to the same high school. They, You know, it's like nothing's changed, but because they're 18, this all changes. And basically, yes. Gordon, these are really important pieces. So I think what I heard you say, and actually I learned something new every time we talk. I did not realize this. Our daughter gets to go to school in the state of Indiana until she's age 22. But what I just learned from you is that's only because she's on a non-diploma track. If she was on a diploma track and finished at 
let's say age 20, then she would be done at that point. So important, very important. It is because sometimes parents push for diploma or the school just kind of nudges them on through to a diploma, whether they're really meeting the academic criteria for it. And as a result, they may be done before they're really done, yeah. <laughs> shall we say. And so parents want to be cognizant of what academic track is really best and certificate track as you were mentioning, may really be best. That is, getting a diploma is not always the best outcome for a child with special needs. And so you're absolutely right. That that issue should be carefully vetted because it could make for four additional years of support and help. Absolutely. And again, I learned something new every time we talked. I had no clue about this, listeners. So really important thing to know. Gordon, you've also mentioned these terms guardianship and SSI supplemental security income. I want to push into those. So let's start with guardianship. But, you know, once that child reaches age of majority, again, 18 in most states, they're basically considered an adult. And so for the parents to continue to be able to provide the support and care that we want to do so, it doesn't just happen automatically. So as a family is approaching that, you know, getting close to that age 18, what do they need to think about? What is this guardianship stuff all about? And how do they go about getting that started? Okay. 18, again, is the age of majority in most states. And so there may be an exception or two out there, but again, in most cases, it's age 18. And so there are different responses to the child turning 18 from a legal standpoint. So it's not that, you know, the same direction is right for everyone. It's not a one size fits all. So guardianship, if appropriate, would be where a child turning age 18 does not have the capacity to make adult decisions, does not have capacity to, so to speak, maintain order in their lives, and would struggle to make medical decisions for themselves, financial decisions for themselves, would struggle to live independently, be able to financially support or to sustain themselves. So if a child at 18 who has special needs is unable to do those things, then that's an indicator that perhaps guardianship should be considered. The process varies by state. The good news is, is that most every state now has a guardianship process. If a parent does go the direction of guardianship, then the decision is made by a judge at the hearing and issues the guardianship order from the bench. There was a time as recent as just a few years ago that uh, there were still some states where they impaneled a jury of your peers to hear guardianship hearings and to say it was unnerving to kind of air, you know, your family laundry in front of a jury was difficult is an understatement. So I'm very pleased to say that I believe the last state that impaneled a jury made that change about three years ago. So parents need not have the worry of of going to court and will the guardianship be approved or this type of thing. As long as it's not contested, then generally the hearing is very smooth and very quick. Some courts will appoint a guardian ad litem to represent the protected person or the 18-year-old for whom guardianship is being sought so that for the extent to which they can understand the proceedings that that they are informed and, and understand what's going on. But again, for guardianship in most states, a petition is created 
normally with the assistance of an attorney, and that petition with medical evidence of the diagnosis and the basis of seeking guardianship is submitted to your county court. And then with the objective being to have a hearing scheduled, and then at the hearing time, either in person, which had been the case until a couple of years ago, or virtual due to COVID, the hearing proceeds at that specific time and evidence and information is provided, questions asked and answered, and then the judge makes the ruling. Usually these things are done in no more than an hour, hour and a half. They're usually, they do not take a long time. Order from the judge then becomes your guardianship papers. And in a way, it's almost like Groundhog Day. And what I mean by that is, is your child legally remains 17 years and 364 days every day. And so they, from a legal standpoint, don't quite reach age 18. In many states, they can still drive or have a driver's license if they're capable of doing so and vote as well. So it's not as though everything is necessarily stripped from them. And again, this varies by state, but the guardianship papers enable parents to continue parenting and to remain in charge of things that the then 18-year-old simply is not capable of or not ready of handling. So it can be a godsend in many situations. Many parents are dealing with government agencies with regards to Medicaid, Medicaid waiver services, Social Security, the school system, and so forth. And these relationships and these dealings can become more complicated in the absence of guardianship where guardianship is appropriate. Also, medical situations with no guardianship, if your child with special needs ends up in the emergency room, uh, because some of our special needs kids are given to medical issues, you can have a challenge on your hands if their parents have no legal standing in the situation. So there are multiple motivations for parents securing guardianship, sometimes behavioral issues. So if you have a child that's not predictable and is subject to behaviors that may be at times difficult to manage or out of control, then having guardianship, again, gives a legal standing to a parent that is seeking to advocate for their child or intervene as necessary. Sometimes children that reach age 18 think that maybe they don't like mom and dad anymore. Some things that other kids do at 13 and 14 come maybe a few years later for a child with special needs. And when that comes at 18, 19, or 20, again, if there's no guardianship, then parents may struggle to maintain control of the situation as the child is seeking to move out, move in with friends, run away, not take medication, not go to doctor's appointments, no longer go to school, and the list goes on and on. So parents you know, ultimately have to decide if their parenting job is far from done. and if it is to consider pursuing the guardianship route. Also good news, it is not financially crushing to get guardianship, and so most every parent where it is appropriate can find a way, and sometimes there are services out there that can provide help at a lesser cost if needed or appropriate. There are alternatives, Tommy, to guardianship, and so if you have a, a young person who has the capacity to understand a durable power of attorney or a healthcare directive and and they're cooperative and will work with parents, then an alternative may be for them to exercise, you know, their adult right to execute a durable power of attorney or health care directive, in essence, sharing authority with parents 
this type of thing to help them, especially if they were in a situation where they, you know, were lack capacity or were in a medical emergency or something. So that's an option. And then in some states, there's also called supported decision-making, where it's a bit of a hybrid, where it's not guardianship, but they select a person that they authorize to help them in making decisions, uh, this type of thing. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, and every situation is different, but I strongly encourage parents as the a child reaches age 18 to fully vet the topic and determine what is an appropriate response for them. Excellent. Gordon, that's so helpful. You know, I know when we were thinking about guardianship and I heard we have to go to court and fortunately we did not have to go to a jury, but there were still some jitters just for me because, you know, I've never done that before, gone to court to try to get legal guardianship of another human, not something I do every day. And it really wasn't that bad as we went through it. We had great support from you, from the attorneys involved. And, you know, it wasn't a hard thing, as nerve wracking as it was. I want to bridge us into talking about SSI. You know, I've always thought of that as Social Security insurance, but that's not really what that stands for, is it, in this case? You're right. SSI is Supplemental Security Income, and it's not paid from payroll taxes. So it's not a part of the Social Security Trust Fund. It's paid from general federal tax revenues. And it is a safety net for individuals that, without that benefit, may struggle to meet the financial requirement of food and shelter expense. So it can be available from birth to grave, depending upon a person's situation. But in most cases, for individuals with special needs, it's something, again, around that turning age 18. Social Security does administer SSI, even though it doesn't come from Social Security trust funds. And again, financial resources that the parent has is no longer a factor at age 18. And so if a child with special needs is not receiving SSI prior to the age of 18, chances are at age 18, we'll want to examine that. So what is SSI and why are people drawn to it? Number one, it's tax-free, both federal and state. The benefit has increased substantially in recent years. We hear about inflation in recent months. Well, the SSI benefit, maximum benefit, I should say, for most states is $841. That's $841 per month. Again, tax-free, both federal and state. Again, that's the maximum benefit for most states. There are a few states out there where the cost of living is so high that the state provides a supplement. New York would be an example, California, that type of thing. So what do they do to qualify for it? Basically, Social Security needs to determine that they're unable to pursue gainful activity at age 18, or if you're applying at 19 or 20, whenever you're applying, substantial gainful activity is, in a summary, full-time employment. So if they're capable of nothing more than than part-time employment, and there's actually an income ceiling for 2022, it's $1,350 per month, $1,350 per month. If they're unable to earn at that level, Their diagnosis is something that's not going away anytime soon, meaning it's long-lasting or could potentially result in death. Then there's a good chance that they would qualify for SSI and receive up to, again, $841 a month, which is over $10,000 a year tax-free. That's a lot of income. And Gordon, one of the things you helped us understand, you know, when not Social Security, but SSI, when SSI came back to us initially, they were not offering our daughter the maximum per month. And we don't have time today to get into the details, but what I can tell our listeners is there are different ways to qualify with SSI and they had us on one track and really didn't offer a lot of great education on what other tracks were out there. 
And so after we got our initial paperwork back, I sent that over to Gordon. He looked at it and said, oh, they've got you on this track. You really should pursue this track given your situation. We did that. And then SSI came back and actually bumped our daughter to a totally different benefit. So it's not as simple as just sending in your paperwork and your set. It's actually understanding the programs enough to know the different tracks and which one's the most appropriate for your situation. And I'm just here to tell you, that's not something that's intuitive. You could read the paperwork all day and probably not figure that out. So whether it's Gordon or someone like him that specializes in this area, I want to encourage our listeners, let that be how you handle this piece. Because for us, it was the difference of thousands of dollars per year for our daughter. So it's like real money just because you understand the right way to do the paperwork. Very, very important. One thing I should mention, you spoke to it. Social Security, in most cases, does not see the role as that of an educator. You know, they take orders. And so uh, being empowered, being able to know what you're looking for is, is very helpful in dealing with Social Security. A couple of other things continuing with the Social Security theme. We're seeing some of our young people receive or uh, achieve part-time employment at, at 19, 20, or 21. And as a result of that, they can become eligible to draw Social Security disability benefits off of their own wage record. Prior to my focus on special needs, I had thought it took 10 years or 40 quarters to be eligible for Social Security disability. But at the ages of many of our young people with special needs, they can be eligible for Social Security disability benefits in as little as a couple of years. So I do want to encourage families that have a child that may potentially be able to embrace employment to not run from it. But to let you know that these benefits that we've talked about today, Tommy, can coexist easily with part-time employment. So do not think they have to make a painful choice of of keeping their child out of the workplace. It's very possible to have part-time employment, again, earning up to that $1,350 per month that we were talking about a moment ago, while still retaining Medicaid services, Medicaid, SSI benefits, and so forth. So, you know, having someone to help guide you is important, but these days, uh, the way things are structured, it's possible to, so to speak, have for them to have their cake and eat it too. And I really get excited about uh, helping families work through those situations. I also want to mention something about Social Security that, frankly, most special needs families do not know about as it relates to Social Security. And it's kind of further down the road, but it bears mentioning because we probably have a broad swath of ages, you know, listening in today. But in many cases, our children with special needs, when they get a bit older and then we're faced with retirement planning or retirement decisions, again, in many cases, our adult children with special needs can draw off of our social security record. So our success in payroll taxes and and building a social security benefit may have a ripple effect on them. In fact, there are many cases where an adult child could draw as much as 50% of our social security retirement benefit. So if, as an example, you're paying at the maximum rate for social security retirement, and you're thinking down the road, you may have a $3,200 or $3,400 a month Social Security retirement benefit, your child with special needs could enjoy a benefit of up to half that, $1,600, $1,700 a month, which is pretty amazing. And so it's really good to look at that. It's what we call adult child benefits. And for parents to attempt to plan in a direction that would enable their adult child to take advantage of of that Social Security benefit. And what's powerful is there's no reduction to the parent. The parent's benefit does not suffer one penny. So they draw their full Social Security benefit. The child's benefit is on top of it. 
And what we're seeing now is we're seeing situations of a family, maybe a mom, a dad, and an adult child with special needs drawing collectively over $6,000 a month in Social Security retirement benefits. So SSI only lasts for a period of time, usually until which time they're able to draw a larger benefit from, from a different bucket, as we call it. So, you know, really from birth to later on in their lives, there are a lot of benefits that are there to help. One thing I do want to mention, if possible, is protecting the eligibility for these benefits. Tommy, if you think we have just a few minutes to include something about planning in such a way that what we're able to leave for them does not pull the rug on them from the standpoint of these very valuable benefits. Yeah, Gordon, actually, my game plan for today is I think that's a great leave behind for our audience to let them know that this is really important. So I'm, I'll am i speak into it and then I'm going to take us to my favorite part of our show. But what Gordon's talking about, audience, is that you know a lot of our listeners are founders or if you've been an investor, you've accumulated some wealth. If you leave it to your child and they're on these programs, most likely those dollars are not going to stay with your child. So we talk about estate planning and people think about, oh, I have a will, something happens to me, my money goes to my spouse. If something happens to both of us, money goes to the kids. That's the most basic. Maybe we put a trust in the mix with that. If something happens to me, my money goes to my spouse. But if something happens to both of us, instead of going directly to the children, it goes to a trust so that it doesn't get all sent to them at age 18 and then they waste it by age 20. When we talk about special needs and children with special needs, we really, really need to go beyond just that kind of 101 and 201 level of thinking. We really have to go to 301 level estate planning. And that is because if we've accumulated any assets of business, investments, things of that nature, a lot of us don't want to see nothing go to our special needs children. In fact, we want to make sure that they are being cared for long beyond us but we have to do it wisely. We have to do it smart. And this is, again, if it's not Gordon, make sure you're talking to somebody that's a specialist in this area like him. A typical advisor is not going to understand this, but you really need to go beyond the typical estate planning or you're running the risk. Talk to somebody the other day, they have a special needs child. And if something would have happened to them, Gordon, you may cry when you hear this, the business would have gone to their special needs child. The family business ownership would have gone to the special needs child. That would have been an absolute nightmare had the business been left to the special needs child. Just would create a lot of complications. So we don't have time to cover it on today's show. Maybe we'll have Gordon back on a future episode just to talk about these things. But certainly I want to say to our audience, and at the very end here, we'll tell you how to get in touch with Gordon. And even if he's not the right guy, maybe your state has some quirks or things like that. He has a vast network of other professionals that he is associated with. He can get you in touch with somebody who can absolutely help in your situation, most likely. So that's going to take us into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask two questions. The first is a question everybody wants to know. And actually what I really mean by that is it's the question I want to know. And then the last question is the question everybody wants to know. And so my question for you today, I'm actually going to go here because I've been thinking about this a lot with this new RNA technology. 
some of the things that scientists are having to think about day in and day out are how can this technology best be used for humanity? And kind of the first major rollout we've seen of RNA technology is coronavirus vaccinations. I don't want to talk about that today. What I do want to talk about is that where scientists believe this RNA technology can go is to go in and actually change genetic sequencing and eliminate some problem areas out of the genetic code. You know, as I was learning about this and I've just been reading nonstop on this probably for a month, I always go a little overboard in anything I'm trying to learn, Gordon. It really got me thinking if I could go next week and have genetic RNA sequencing accomplished that would solve my daughter's special challenges, would I want that? So what I want to ask you today is just maybe broader. Do you have any wisdom you would share? You've worked with so many families across the country that have these children that, you know, you said society's come so far. We used to look at it as this is just a problem. I have to submit my life is so much better because I have a special daughter in it. I just want to ask that as science is trying to figure out, and let's pretend that science hits a point where they could really snap our fingers and we can go in and help a lot of these special kids now be, quote, normal. What would you say to that? Well, I think largely all kids are unique. Special needs are not. You know, we love them for who they are and their uniqueness. I think what I reflect on is, is if the advances in technology or medical science could extend life expectancies or could help address issues of discomfort or pain that may be associated with you know, certain conditions or diagnoses, things that come to mind such as muscular dystrophy or things where our special kids' life expectancy is substantially shortened or where they're, again, subject to you know, a reasonable amount of discomfort or pain. So my focus is on, you know, I guess there being all that they can be. In other words, again, back to the quality of life that we were talking about earlier. So certainly for anything that would enhance their quality of life, you know, like my son with his Crohn's disease, you know, when you blow out your gut at 15 and, you know, have major surgeries and an ostomy and that type of thing, of course, you would think, boy, if there's some way we could change something that would avoid that. But at the same time, as far as who he is, I wouldn't mess with it because, you know, I'm crazy about him. (laughs) I love it. That's such a thoughtful answer. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate, as I've been studying this, the thoughtful approach that the scientific community is taking toward this, that they're not jumping to, you know, mass conclusions. They're really thinking through, boy, our lives in a lot of way are better because of the diversity that we get from these unique humans. And I love what you said, boy, if we can relieve their pain, I think that's something that we can all get our arms around and say, yes, science, please start there. Let's figure that out. And in that, I think we'll all get a taste of what 
you know, science has to offer. But I think that's a brilliant place to start. And you said it more eloquently than I've heard any of the leading scientists say it yet, Gordon. So thank you for that. We're going to go into my final question. And I have to believe, Gordon, that uh, out of our listeners, and we're so thankful uh, this audience has just grown beyond my wildest dreams, but out of our listeners, uh, surely either some of them have special needs, children or loved ones, or they're friends with someone that does. And surely somebody will want to actually reach out and address these issues. Gordon, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? There's a toll-free number available throughout the United States. Uh, That number is 800-903-6380. So that method of communication would work. Again, one more time, 800-903-6380. Alternatively, my email address is G-H-O-M-E-S, just G-Holmes, and there's not an L in the last name. Everyone is so generous to add an L, but it's just G-H-O-M-E-S at Financial Guide. Again, Financial Guide is in G-U-I-D-E dot com. And those are uh, the two, two best ways, Tommy. Thank you for asking. You know, Gordon, I'm sure from our listeners, there has to be someone out there that either they have a loved one who has special needs, or maybe they're friends with someone who has a special needs loved one that could definitely use your assistance. Again, from my standpoint, I, you know, I did highly specialized financial planning for brain surgeons for two decades, and I did not know any of this before working with Gordon. So even if it's not Gordon, he would tell you, make sure you're working with someone who knows what they're doing in this space. But if you would like to get in touch with Gordon, Gordon, what is the best way for someone to reach out to you? I have a website, which is www.gordonfhomes.com. And through that, uh, they can uh, uh, make an inquiry or see the rest of my contact information. So it's www.gordon, that's two O's, F as in Frank, Holmes, and there's no L in Holmes. It's just H-O-M-E-S. Dot com. Right. So first name, middle initial, which is uh, F as in Frank, and my last name, H-O-M-E-S.com. Excellent. We'll post that in the show notes as well, listeners. So Gordon, it's always a pleasure. I learned multiple new things today. No surprise there. It happens every time I talk with you. And thank you so much for what you are doing for the world and for families all over the country. You just have such a heart of gold. It's a pleasure to know you. It's a pleasure to work with you. And thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you, Tommy. Enjoyed uh, visiting with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.